1: Welcome to New Books in Journalism, the podcast where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm Dave Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this episode, we hear from Henry Jenkins and Sam Ford, two of the authors of Spreadable Media, Creating Value and Meaning in a Network Culture. It's about messages, control, and the spread of ideas in the new world order of production and consumption. Sam Henry, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. So the book is "Spreadable Media: uh, Creating Value and Meaning in a Networked Culture." And before we get into the book, and it's it's interesting, I've read it. How did this project come about, and how did you two find each other, as well as Josh Green?
2: Uh, Well, uh, convergence culture, my previous book, had come out, and we were I was discovering. That the ideas in the book were being taken up by a number of people working across the creative industries, journalists, uh, advertising people, producers of television shows, networks. There seemed to be a real interest. And we were interested in getting a deeper understanding of how the creative industries worked in this era of participatory culture. So we created the Convergence Culture Consortium at MIT. uh, And... This was partially a way of getting our grad students who were interested in entering the industry to create and have opportunities. It was partially about a research exchange. Um, as we set it up, one of the first grad students to work on the consortium was Sam Ford. And shortly after we launched, we hired Joshua Green as the research director of the consortium. Sam went on to become um, a sort of associate research director of the consortium. And now, I guess, as the consortium has changed its name to Futures of Entertainment Consortium, you're pretty much the, the leader of our, our tribe of, of researchers.
0: Yeah, at least the coordinator. It's an interesting group to, to keep together. You asked how Henry and I found each other. I uh, first encountered Henry's work as an undergraduate researching uh, pro-wrestling audiences, and came across some writing Henry was in the process of doing uh, in conjunction with his son. Uh, for a collection called Steel Chair to the Head, which was uh, the greatest name for an academic collection. It's by a scholar named uh, Nick Salmond. That's and fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I knew Henry first as a pro wrestling scholar uh, and then you know, uh, discovered Textual Poachers. And and his work uh, ended up coming to the Program in Comparative Media Studies at MIT, which he was a co-director of and uh, was fortunate enough to launch the uh, the consortium, which we conceived of before Convergence Culture came out. And one of the discussions we were having as a as a group was uh, Convergence Culture and some of our early work was focused on uh, a lot of fan production practices, audience production practices. Yet a lot of what was happening, uh, a lot of the energy that was happening amongst audiences wasn't just about production. A lot of it was about the control of circulation. And uh, a lot of the ways we'd initially... Uh, framed what we were working on didn't really account for that. So as we continued doing research on how um, companies and uh, content creators were uh, developing relationships with their audiences, understanding their audiences, this, this focus on circulation uh, became an increasing part of our work and started to drive uh, what eventually became the Spreadable Media Project.
2: And so Spreadable Media really grew out of the dialogue we were having On this community. So we kept expanding our research fellows, we kept getting new alumni came through the program, and we'd all developed a shared vocabulary through things like the Futures of Entertainment Conference, the consortium runs every November at at MIT. And so this book started as a white paper we wrote in dialogue with our client, the client companies that supported the consortium, and that was written with Xiao Cheng Li and Anna Dom. And then it evolved into a book that Sam and Josh and I worked on together. And now as the book has come out, we now have around it uh, something like 40 essays by various people who've been affiliated with the consortium through the years that are very integral to the book itself. And these are 2,000-word essays that live on the web. Uh, we encourage people to spread them, circulate them, engage with them in whatever ways they want. And we discuss them and engage with them critically throughout the book. And so this is a kind of hybrid of uh, the monograph, as historically academics have written it, and some kind of anthology that's designed to provoke a conversation, to model what a conversation might look like. And so some of the grad students that contribute, alums that contribute, were, are academics. Some of them have been moved to industry, but they're part of the ongoing discussions we've been having as a community around these issues for six, seven years now. Really, really the heart behind
0: the Convergence Culture Consortium project was uh, it was twofold. On the academic side, it was to bring together an interdisciplinary uh, group of folks who may have been aware of one another's work but had never had uh, as much opportunity to collaborate. So we ended up with anthropologists, sociologists, uh, business uh, and marketing professors, uh, and and, uh, also some academics who were hybrid uh, in industry roles alongside – uh, professors who are in more traditional humanities roles, uh, and then our other goal as we engage with uh, with. Partner companies in the media industries and in marketing was to introduce them to this work, uh, this wider range of people. So they had come to the the program we had at MIT because they had heard of that program and were interested in it. But in the process, uh, you know, we found a lot of our scholars in our network ended up, you know, very few of them were at MIT in particular. It was a very uh, interconnected network across the U.S., but also increasingly globally. And so we, we wanted to play that dual role. So hopefully that spirit. It comes through in the spreadable media project where we hope uh, in as much as our authored text draws people's interest that we're able to then introduce them to a the, range of, of work from other people and with side benefit as these pieces are available on the web that some people will, will likely encounter those some of those pieces first and learn about the uh, greater book project and some of the other uh, research being done in this space through any one of those individual pieces
1: and you talked about the challenges of bringing all these voices together. Early on in the book, you talk about how this book is primarily for, for three different audiences. How do, when, you, when you bring in so many different voices, and oftentimes the academic voice doesn't translate to the, quote-unquote, the real-world voice, how did you go about making sure that, that what you heard and what they said, both online and in the book, was something that, that can be applied to the different audiences?
0: Well, you know, one of the things we did uh, as we were working on this project, it was a very collaborative process. So uh, Henry, Josh, and I wrote uh, the core book in Google Docs, which uh, uh, is a whole other, could be a, a whole focus of a podcast itself on what it's like to, uh, r- rather than each write chunks of the book, actually literally write the book Together, And so one of the things we tried to play a role with one another is, as we were writing sections, to think about each of those three audiences and bring the audience's perspective to that work. By the time we were halfway through this project, uh, all of us had left MIT. And I was working in – I now work in the communications consultancy uh, space – uh, Henry had moved to the University of Southern California in the Annenberg School, uh, and Josh was first at UC Santa Barbara uh, leading a media industries project uh, and now works for a digital strategy firm called Undercurrent. So our, one of our goals as authors was to bring that each of those perspectives to the text. The other thing we did uh, very early on and through all drafts of this project is forward uh, the text along to all our contributors and also to a pretty wide range of uh, of Of uh, friends and colleagues uh, in the media industries and in the marketing world uh, and in various fields of academia, and have them come back to us with the things that didn't make sense, uh, the terminology that seemed arcane the uh, the sorts of buzzwords that seemed to slip through or that we needed to challenge and and that sort of workshopping process. We hoped, you know, our take was people would have these sorts of criticisms after the book came out, and at that point we wouldn't be able to do much about it as much as we could encourage that sort of dialogue while we were still working on the book, the better.
2: You know, as an academic, I've always been deeply committed to making my ideas as accessible to the broadest possible public. You know, I think we're living through this tumultuous period in the history of media where media change, uh, a period of prolonged and profound media change is impacting every aspect of our lives. And if media scholars sit that out and don't engage with the public as they're struggling with these issues, then we have we have abdicated our responsibility as professors, right? And the, the, the traditional notion of the professor is one who professes, who engages in conversations with the public. And so it's vital, I think, that we be part of these conversations. Now, it helps that I was trained as a journalist, that I worked as a journalist. So I write Fairly quickly, and I write with the understanding that it's going to be read by people, which is not true of every academic writer out there, right? <laughs> right. And that as that I blog three days a week, you know, at henryjenkins.org means that I'm constantly engaged with readers of my work who are not academics. Uh, and and when everything's said and done, convergence culture sold more, many more copies to non-academics than people at universities. Um, so that. To me, this is the logical next step to form this collaboration with people who are, you know, working in the industry. To involve ourselves with public policy people, to involve ourselves with with all kinds of readers in the process of de- developing the book. So that, as Sam said, if they're going to weigh in when it's done, they're going to weigh in. There'll be a conversation when the book comes out we might as well incorporate them into the writing process as much as possible. Well, and
0: to that end, uh, my my background's in journalism as well. And, you know, there was always the talk in uh, J school that you're writing the first draft of history. And so we very much uh, took that. Notion to heart as we worked on this project. So, Henry mentioned the first thing we did is we were even toying with the notion. Is uh, Henry uh, worked with a, a couple of the grad students to flesh out some of the core ideas in a white paper, which was very much that traditional sense of what a white paper would be putting some of the ideas out, releasing them uh, first within our consortium and then to the wider public fairly quickly. And we One of the other difficulties of studying something like digital culture and this moment of media change Henry was describing is the world changing really quickly, and academic publishing is a process that uh, doesn't necessarily respond to rapid change uh, because you go through, in our case – two rounds of peer review, we had a you know, wonderful editor who gave us line-by-line line sorts of edits, but every one of these processes take a lot of time, not to mention the time it takes to put a book into production and do copy editing and indexing. So you're talking about a project that we started conceiving of at the end of 2007 that uh, saw print at the beginning of 2013. So in the course as we were working on that project over, the, over a number of years, uh, putting the white paper out there, hosting webinars, doing sessions at the uh, Futures of Entertainment conference. Henry's blog, uh, certainly as he mentioned, uh, in my case, writing some guest pieces for Fast Company and other places that I'm a contributor to, was a key way to get ideas out there and get uh, feedback to them. So that, you know, certainly a good portion of the book, as you read it in its final form, some iteration of some of those ideas had been published in a softer, uh, less formed place somewhere before. And our goal with the book is to really you could look at it as a a collection or an anthology of our ideas and thinking over the last uh, five or six years finally brought together in book form.
1: You know, it reminds me, as you describe how you put it together. I recently heard Guy Kawasaki speak, the venture capitalist, former Apple guy. Yeah. And he just put out a book on on the self-publishing industry. And and when he had a draft of it, he said he went on, I think it was Google Plus, and said, can anybody read this for me? You know, Which previously was just a, an unheard of thing to do in the publishing industry. People might steal your ideas, or that was the fear. Yeah. And instead he had, I think he said, 70 or 80 people reply, and he sent them copies. And of those 70 or 80, maybe 10 or 15 actually took the time to read it and send notes back, and he worked them all back into his you know, final manuscript. And I think we're seeing a lot more of this, you know, you know, as I, as I read the book, the one, a lot of ideas got me excited, but one that got me particularly interested was, was your, I don't want to use the term war, but I'm going to your war on the word viral. (laughs) And uh, I I just want to jump up and down and high five anybody. But what is it about the word viral that doesn't work in, in our current culture?
2: Well, the word viral makes us sick. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at a very basic level, viral media is a metaphor of contagion, right? At its root, we're saying that someone in the industry designs a killer virus and infects a human host. The host unknowingly takes it back to their village or their family and infects everyone they know, and it travels through without any human agency involved with it other than the agency of the designer. It's a way of... Maintaining the illusion of control over over the flow of media at a time where traditional producers have largely lost control over it. So at its root, it's tied to notions of irrationality, of the unknowable, of you know loss of control. It allow that that sense allows us to do two things, right? One, people in the industry can either shrug and say, "I have no idea what happened. It just went viral." Or there's someone who rubs their hands together and says, for a lot of money, you can, we can teach you how to make your content go viral, and it becomes arcane knowledge, and we don't believe either of those is the best way to think about it. Everything in cultural studies tells us that people pass along media for, for a reason, that they make a whole set of choices about who to pass it to, which content out of the flow in their inbox in any given day is worth passing along to who, through which channels, with which messages attached. And that means it's open to social and cultural understanding that I think starts when we acknowledge that people are choosing to spread your content, not spreading it accidentally.
0: There are two problems at hand with the the way viral is used. Uh, The first is one of imprecision. So the first time viral was, uh, as we discuss in the book, the first time viral was applied to a marketing context was in the case of Hotmail, and the little messages that would go along at the bottom of an email, along the lines of need a free email account, sign up at hotmail.com. Uh, and they use that as an example of viral marketing. And I actually think it was a pretty apt metaphor in that instance because I would send along an email, and unbeknownst to me, or even if I eventually came to know it, kind of irrelevant to me, this carrier. Marketing message goes along and and it would somewhat be like interacting with somebody and not knowingly passing along a virus to them, which uh, I caught the flu this flu season, and somebody probably did that very thing uh, to me unbeknownst to them uh, in the course of a conversation so that but the problem is that metaphor then got stretched uh, past the point of recognition, so we started describing things that don't work at all like that as being the same sort of unknowing uh, uh, passage. And uh, I would argue there are certain things in our uh, uh, culture now that is quite like viral marketing. Uh, So if you uh, read a story and it shows up in your Facebook feed that you read that story or that you like something that you didn't intend to necessarily pass along – we could say that is an example of viral marketing or pass-along. An action you take, unbeknownst to you, has a carrier marketing message that is automated that you didn't take any conscious part in. And I think those sorts of things do happen, and we're seeing uh, platforms like Facebook engage in some of those activities more and more often and try to build them into their system. Uh, the problem is if we describe everything as viral, quote-unquote, we have a hard time calling out those practices uh, from the more conscious uh, uh, choices of of pass along that, that people make, and that was one of our key distinctions. The other part of it is Henry's point is this this idea of uh, of agency. So so much of what we're describing as as viral uh, are cases where describing them as viral strip people of any uh, uh, any uh, active choice they have, and 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 choosing to circulate content. And for us, that leads to uh, the marketing industries thinking about their audience in a very narrow way. And, uh, and you know, f- with my marketing and communications hat on, I would say leads to a lot of failed uh, campaigns and attempts because uh, companies that think they can make their audiences pass something along have a fundamental misunderstanding of this Era of spreadability and the role the audience
2: plays in it. So let's give an example of spreadable content that probably would be familiar with the journalistic audience the bundles, the binders of women phrase that cropped up during the presidential debate last last fall. This was a phrase that Romney uses in the middle of a nationally televised debate, yet CNN didn't pick up on it in its commentary immediately after the debate. If you turn to Twitter, Thousands of women all over the country were tweeting immediately in reaction to this. The phrase started to grow momentum as it was still on the air. Someone sat up quickly, uh, uh, you know, a, a Tumblr site and encouraged people to send in mashed up imagery. Within t- two days time, there were several thousand of these mashed up imagery focusing on the phrase binders of women, matching it with various things, no two of which were alike. Right? It wasn't that they were. this was a virus that was replicating itself with similar symptoms. It was people consciously made a choice. This was a phrase worth calling out and used their creative energies to create something. All of those things are traveling through different trajectories, through different communities that these people are already embedded in. And it forces the mainstream news media to pay attention to it. And the payoff was considerable for Canada already being accused of being at war with women we discovered first that he didn't create the binders of women, that they were given him by a feminist organization. Secondly, we find out that the cabinet positions he appointed women to were not the high-powered ones. They were secondary. Third, we find out that most, when those women left, he'd replace them with men. And finally, the question, why did he need binders to begin with? Well, because there were no women on the executive board at Maine Capital where his corporate experience had been. So this was each, as the thing spread... The news media and journalists did their job, began to focus on the story in a renewed way. So if we call that viral, we strip away all the political agency that's involved with it. The reality, this was a story that emerged grassroots as the public heard the phrase differently than professional journalists did. And it forced journalists to do their jobs better because this thing was being put on the national agenda through acts of circulation.
0: Well, and the other thing about viral is it only measures success in terms of uh, metrics, numbers. So the idea, you know, success for viral means you created a, a pandemic, and that's the only means of success. So I think to, to your to your point, Henry, if we were to call that a viral success, then the discussion would be about how many people use the phrase, how many times the clip was viewed. It turns it into a quantitative sort of discussion that strips out from a cultural studies perspective much more interesting questions of why and how and the motivation of the audience for passing this along and what sorts of discussions it facilitated. I also think another danger is it causes us, when we're talking about viral, to disregard uh, a lot of a lot of campaigns that didn't reach pandemic proportions that might have been aimed at a particular audience. So as we talk about spreadable content, we can talk about a lot of instances where stuff became very highly spread and discussed within a small community or within a certain limited context uh, that I think can can yield very interesting results, but often wouldn't be described as a quote unquote viral success.
1: Sure. And Henry you used the the binders of women example. How what the media was hearing and what the was going out there was different from what the the people listening heard, and, and these are ideas that that go back, you know, year. I mean, it, it's it's Stewart Hall's encoding decoding stuff, and in terms of this myth of top down control, I mean, that can go back as far as God. I mean, like Herbert Herzog. I mean, so far far back. Now, now there's these wonderful ideas in spreadable media, but what what is it that you think it is about communication professionals that they've been so slow? to, if not adopt, but to even understand this whole idea of, of who is in control and, and, and how people are going to be sharing ideas and sharing media versus what it is that they think that they're producing.
2: Well, I think we could take it back even earlier than your, your outline suggests. Um, I've been reading this new book by Ellen Garvey, uh, which talks about scrapbookers in the 19th century. And, you know, as newspapers are circulating – People are cutting things out of newspapers and they're putting them in scrapbooks. And she describes their very conscious choices by African-Americans, by early feminist groups to construct counter histories to the dominant representation of the news uh, by choosing what to cut out, what to juxtapose on the page, creating archives that they were there. You know, in some cases they called out segregationist. Uh, who made statements in the news that then suddenly disappeared from the public record when they were running for you know office later, and they were able to prop- demonstrate this did appear in print at some moment in time, and it was a way of constructing a counter view. So journalists have lived in a world where we remix their content, where we cut out their content, and where we recirculate their content as long as we've had newspapers, right? But we've been I think the new media environment has fundamentally changed the, the scope and scale in which this can take place, that it becomes that much easier to excerpt, pass along, it becomes that much easier to reach large numbers of people. And we're seeing just unprecedented sc- scopes of circulation emerging around certain things. Coney um, 2012, uh, Gangnam Style, uh, Susan, the Susan Boyle video we began the book with, all of which reach a scale that we never would have anticipated grassroots circulation could have reached before and force things onto national agendas, international agendas that weren't there before. So I think as media professionals, you have to understand you op- that's the world you're operating with. All signs are the young, current generation of young people are not sitting down and reading a newspaper on the, on the train, and they're not watching the evening news on television – they are getting snippets of information all day long circulated to them by trusted friends and communities, and that's how we get our news now. And if you don't understand that, then you're probably doing journalism in a way that's antiquated and is not going to last uh, much longer.
0: Well, and you asked, you know, why are uh, media and uh, communications professionals so bad at this? And and
1: And I should have said some. I should have said
0: yeah, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. And, and I think you know, the question is there's a, a systemic uh, lack of understanding of these processes. And I think it's tied up in uh, the fact that, as if you look in the 19th century with the rise of the mass printing press, and in the 20th century with the rise of the broadcast. Paradigm, it was very hard to in any way really know your audience beyond the very base sort of quantitative ways you could have of understanding the audience. What was the circulation? uh, What is the number of viewers that can be best estimated in a broadcast setting? So, as you enter this space and age where uh, the audience uh, practices of passing things along and recommending things and discussing things have a textual trail. That especially as these discussions take place online, uh, we as an industry, though, have been trained uh, to think about uh, storytelling and content creation from that broadcast sort of mindset. So you could look at uh, several of the metaphors we tackle in the book. Uh, as we move from the broadcast paradigm to the stickiness paradigm we talk about in the book of putting content in a place and then trying to drive an audience to it online, to the idea of viral, which would say, yes, stuff does spread, but it is the power of the content that causes it to spread, not the audience, even to this idea of influencers, which in the marketing world would say, okay, maybe we do have to come to understand the, communi- the community of an audience we're trying to reach, but in, that, in reality, there are only a few members of that community who are the tastemakers, and we really just have to understand or develop a relationship with them. All of these are shortcuts to actually really understanding and pay attention to the audience. So I, I would say you look back to how you know, how journalists are trained Uh, and how uh, people in going into PR or advertising and marketing are trained, and most of it focuses on what we want to tell the world and what uh, it means to create the content, and not much of it is focused on developing relationships or understandings uh, of the end audience beyond anything other than the numbers.
2: So I I think even if journalists don't want to think about their own content in this way, they have to understand that they're living in a world where content flows are going to be affecting other people this way. So. Let's think for a moment about Downton Abbey, which, you know, was aired in Britain six months ago, that uh, obviously lots of information spreads through, you know, online discussions and so forth. The the content's available on BitTorrent. Uh, PBS is plugging along, trying to string out the episodes over a series of weeks and maintain suspense and anxiety about how the outcome of the season is going to go. Even the DVDs drop. Uh, three weeks before the end of the broadcast of the series in this case. And the journalists covering it are having to decide what constitutes spoilers and what are their way when two-thirds of their audience already knows the outcome of the storyline. But they don't want to necessarily be attacked by those who don't. And so the journalist is trying to figure out how to position themselves in relation to all of these other flows of information that are affecting consumers. They don't want to be behind the times, They don't want to be complicit in a set of practices that are trying to create secrets and create artificial scarcity, but they also don't want an angry public who feels like they were waiting to watch it on television, and they picked up the newspaper, and they looked on an online site, and and there in the headline was information about what was going to happen in the final episode of Downton Abbey. So we live in a world where information is porous. It travels across national borders. It travels across communities. Journalists have to figure out how to position themselves in relation to that porous communication environment. And operate within it.
0: Uh, you know, one of the real challenges, if you think about an era of journalism, uh, if, you, if you were a, a writer for the Wall Street Journal, it didn't matter so much to the, to, to the reader in a way, or you didn't presume it mattered who you were because the, the, the title of the paper sort of brought along with it a certain level of trust. Uh, and yet, as content uh spreads online, often people are engaging with an individual story, not reading you know the, the paper front to back. so a lot of new questions sort of uh, arise, and the role the journalist has uh in actually interacting with and having relationships with their reader really changes. It's something we we're seeing and dealing with a lot uh in terms of uh of how journalists develop relationships with their sources in terms of how they gather information. So you see a lot of journalists uh, either directly or indirectly charged with developing a public presence for themselves and, and very entrepreneurially building themselves as a brand. And this is something you didn't learn. you know, When I went through J School, it's something we didn't even talk about, wasn't even a concept of what's my brand as an individual journalist. You develop clips, and then you try to get those clips picked up or real tape, you're in broadcast to get it picked up and get jobs, and, and, uh, and you were defined by where you worked. And now you have, uh, instead, journalists who are doing a lot of their news gathering through their readers, through the relationships they have, uh, through participation in social media, for instance, uh, and being able to listen to social media. So source gathering and information gathering online. And then in return, who are formally or informally charged with promoting their content, their stories, once they post – through their online presence, so that people are, in many ways, acting as uh, entrepreneurs, even if they have a full-time staff job as a journalist uh, at a particular publication. We're even seeing incentives often set up that, you know, you may get, for instance, a base level of pay and then get certain uh, perks or bonuses for having the most forwarded or shared uh, story in the newsroom in a given week. And to see those sorts of processes take place really changes what it means to, to be a journalist. I'm not saying all of these things are things that are purely should be celebrated. There are some a lot of questions that raises as well. We're, uh, I think I would speak for Henry to say there are a lot of things we're quite uh, optimistic about and think have great potential for uh, – uh, for a, a more level playing field and a more interesting media landscape. But there are also a lot of aspects of this that raises interesting ethical questions.
1: And, Sam, you brought up the the audience, the readers, and I think that's a good segue into a question I had, which was there's, there's a really well, cool kind of turn of uh, phrase in here of audiences as commodity and labor. And especially when I saw labor, you know, my you know, alarm or bells just started going off. What What do you mean by that phrase of audiences as commodity and labor?
2: Well, both neither of those are our phrases, but they're part of a critical studies tradition, which is they actually go back to Dallas Smythe, who wrote wrote, it, wrote about both of those functions mm-hmm. around Nielsen ratings. Uh, I guess in the late sixties, early seventies. Um, so the commodity is that our attention gets is what's sold to advertisers by broadcast networks by newspapers and so forth. That we, the, the goal of most media has historically been to attract audiences who um, then could be sold to advertisers. So we become commodities at the moment where our eyeballs and our attention get sold. We become labor insofar as we are actively performing tasks in order to increase the value of content. And for Dallas Life, Watching television was a kind of labor, that it was our work of watching television that did us, that created labor. Now in the world of Web 2.0, labor is every YouTube video I contribute, every Facebook post I make, every tweet I make is making money for someone uh, in the system, and we are not necessarily compensated for that labor by the companies that are profiting from it. So there's a strong tradition of critique around Web 2.0 that says this is exploitation. This is unpaid labor. Now, we we embrace we, we think that there's a legitimate point being made there, that there's something, an important discussion that we have. This is part of what's wrong with Web 2.0. But I think we want to go a step or two beyond that because talking about this as unpaid labor then implies that all we got to do is compensate people for it, and then it becomes okay. And for lots of the communities we're looking at, they don't want to be part of. They don't want to be commodified. They don't want to become part of a system that the content they create as gifts to exchange with each other gets turned into commodities that are sold to begin with. That many users of YouTube object to having ad- advertisements put on front of their videos uh, that they created to share within their own community. Even if they got a percentage of the revenue for it, that would not be sufficient. Now, was, all, oh, sorry. Go ahead. The analogy I make that's somewhat colorful is that if you went on a hot date with someone and you made passionate love all night and you woke up the next morning and they left a hundred dollar bill on your dresser, you would not feel that that had improved your relationship with each other, <laughs> right? That that you that you would feel like what had been given as a gift and a reciprocal relationship had been transformed into some kind of prostitution. And at that point, you would be angry, not complimented by the tip given for your services. So I think it's too simple to describe this as unpaid labor and think that the problem is we're working for someone else and you're not getting paid for it. We really have to go deeper to think about what are the social relationships that are being expressed when people choose to share content with each other using these Web these web 2.0 portals. And, and, and playing around with
0: language, one of the contentions we have in the book is even this idea that the people who create content uh, produce all value, and the role of the audience is only to delete value. That uh, much like you know, even the idea of consumption or the consumer—that something is made—and then the only role the audience can have is to uh, is to uh, do away with, you know, like eating food. But of course, most we're talking about in a media context, uh, the labor often doesn't uh, delete or devalue, but gives more social capital to that. So we draw, for instance, uh, Grant McCracken has a piece we uh, in the online version of the book that proposes, if, what if we use the term multiplier? instead of consumer for a lot of these practices because the labor the audience puts into even the act of watching or reading or listening to something all the way to the more active roles of sharing stuff, passing it along, creating content in response to it, certainly doesn't consume that product, uh, quote-unquote, in any way at all, but actually creates much more potential social and cultural and even economic value for a lot of those uh, media products. So, uh, that's one of the main focuses or strands throughout our book is how do, uh, media professionals understand that and, and, and start to develop strategies and processes that respect that, that, that audience labor, uh, in, in a way that is, uh, uh, that coheres with how, to Henry's point, how the audience would want that labor respected, that it's not a simple, there's no simple solution to this question, uh, in fact, you know, people people looking for for a handbook are probably going to be quite frustrated with spreadable media, in as much as it gains a, an industry audience because it raises
2: a whole lot more questions than it answers. I think. So, so uh, one of the examples we use, and one of the online essays that tied to the book, is around the, the television show Firefly, which built a very, very solid fan loyal fan base, although not enough to stay on television given Nielsen ratings. Right. And reached out to those fans uh, when he wanted to make the movie and didn't use them to demonstrate there was a market. The studio cut back on advertising for the movie and the fans actively publicized the film, reached out to their networks, tried to get people to come in for the opening weekend, in the process of which they were selling T-shirts and bumper stickers and so forth to promote the film. A week later, the studio sends out cease and desist letters and threatens to sue them because they violated the intellectual property rights of the film producers. And rather than backing down, the Firefly fl- fans responded by calibrating the number of hours they put into promoting the film and sent a bill to the studio for billable hours, the services they rendered, and helping to publicize the film. And I think that re- that's the spirit in which I would think about this, that fans are labor that increases value, but they're not unskilled labor, they're not alienated labor, they are labor that's actively... Wants to collaborate in many cases with the systems of production and are looking for the right way to do it, but certainly don't need to deserve to be sued by a studio that benefits enormously from their creative output.
0: And in the introduction of the book, we, we use the example as well of the Mad Men fans who uh, actively used Twitter to perform the characters from the show and, and similarly uh, had their account shut down, et cetera. The interesting thing that happened there is a lot of those fans, because that show was about the advertising industry, a lot of those fans were also uh, media industries professionals. They worked in the marketing world and uh, put together uh, quite robust responses to the uh, the agents, to AMC, the creators of the show, and the agency that was helping promote the show, uh, trying to argue from an industry perspective uh, as to why it was in their own economic best interest to allow these activities to happen. So we're very interested in these moments where uh, you can see uh, the media industry is almost acting against their own best interest because uh, there's been a shift in in, uh, in, in logic. Uh, and 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 logic and 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 they're operating by a paradigm that uh, perhaps is is uh, uh, becoming outmoded quite quickly.
1: So, so when you have these these faux madmen accounts, and you have this Firefly and Serenity example, you know when you have these different parties and, and the expectations and the values and the motives of these different parties are in conflict. Taking it back to the idea of spreadable media, what what has to happen in order for for participation to become meaningful participation in, in which all of a sudden then all parties are, are then working toward, I don't want to say common goal because that's not, not what it is, but they are all working toward the, the, the dissemination of this media.
0: Uh, a lot of it, I think, has to do with developing and fostering relationships. And uh, uh, one of the underlying themes of a lot of the book is empathy how uh, audiences can come to understand the motivations of uh, the creators of the content they're passing along and very much so the the, the reciprocal uh, to that. So we talk in the book about the difference between hearing and listening in one section and how companies have been traditionally very good at hearing their audience, recording the, that they have said something. Uh, so you have companies who say often, yeah, we listen to our audience. We track how many mentions we get in social media and whether they were positive, negative, or neutral, and how much of the share of voice is the term that's often used in communications we own versus our competitors or versus other things in, in the culture. And I think that those are the sorts of things that have to go by the wayside because as long as you understand your audience, if you're a, if you're a media professional, as long as you understand your audience as an abstraction uh, or as an aggregated number rather than – the actual human beings uh, who who are involved, uh, the, you know, it's going to be very difficult to foster this sort of deep understanding required to to activate these relationships. And I think uh, we have to do away with what I think a lot of in, in professional training. We sort of get trained against the very things we know how to do in our personal lives, which we a lot of things you see companies do and media uh, producers do. Uh, we would never you know, we would never walk into a a party and only talk about ourselves or only listen to if someone mentions our name and then go join the conversation then. and So many of these other things, we certainly wouldn't survey and write down attributes of the people in the room and then create an aggregate model of understanding uh, of the people we're interacting with. All these sorts of things sound quite foreign, but the broadcast sort of mentality has driven uh, people in marketing and media industries to take this sort of approach. And I think we're seeing a need to break that down because if you start to understand and think about and to be able to empathize and put yourself in the shoes of your audience, your questions start to change. It's not, how do I get them to pass my stuff along? It's what would be the kinds of things that they would see cultural and social value in? What would facilitate the sorts of activities they're already doing? And how do I create material that they might want to pass along? Those are from a creative standpoint, those are very different sorts of questions you start to ask, even from the beginning of the design process of, of creating content.
2: Yeah. So I, I and I think the language of brand community, which took roots maybe over the last decade and was in some ways the beginning of thinking of the consumer in a social, culturally connected way and taking a more ethnographic view on what consumption means. But it is incredibly self-centered to imagine the community only exists at the will of the brand, that we are the brands or media producers create communities around their content. Far more productive is to say that we there are communities of long standing with their own traditions, their norms, their hierarchies, their values, their practices that are having ongoing conversations around cars, technology, uh, news, you know, science fiction, what have you. That companies can create resources to engage with. That they they should understand what those communities are and identify those communities that are most likely to have an active interest in their content and then engage them as as communities as social entities rather than an egocentric way of imagining that we're all your friends on Facebook because at the end of the day for most products we're just not that into you right we we, we, (laughs) you know we just don't care that much about the brands we're invested in and we expect if you want to enter our conversations you have to enter on our terms and give us something of value. And same thing is journalists thinking that they are offering us all the news that's fit to print and ignoring all of the active interests that the various communities have that are underserved by journalists, but are the, the fans of, of news are actively collecting bits of information from many different sources and crystallizing them for their communities who want to have conversations around specific topics that news journalists have traditionally done a very bad job of covering, whether it's minority populations within a city, whether it's the disabled population or senior citizens or youth. We go down the list of things that news does a bad job of covering. We depend on each other to find those snippets of information out there and assemble them. And it's no longer about, oh, we're the community of readers of The New York Times.
0: Well, and and similar to that, uh, you know, another thing journalists have traditionally been very bad at uh, is thinking of the publishing of their piece of content as the end of the process. So typically, you would do research to ultimately run a story in the paper, and that was that's the end of it for you. And uh, I think here to Dan Gilmore's work uh, about how so much of the journalism process for him eventually became seeing the publishing of an initial story as the very beginning of the process. So once you put your initial research out there and share it, then seeing what readers come back with and respond and the sort of corrections they make and the angles you didn't think about that they then introduce could lead to a wealth of potential follow-up stories if we think of content as the ongoing fodder for a back-and-forth conversation rather than the thing we're trying to build an audience for. And, uh, and I think that, that starts to shift the conversation so that uh, you know, one of the worst things I see happen in the journalism industry is every time something comes out, gets released, happens, that gets an initial story, and you never see the follow-up story of what happens with it after that point.
1: Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> and, you know, and audiences, of course, uh, c- c- uh, bring a lot of those perspectives to light, but you have to have a relationship with your audience, and you have to be listening. Uh, and that was you know, a lot of Dan's work in, in We the Media and around the the, the book project was to say that I love to get corrected and I love to have audiences come back and introduce new ideas, concepts, etc., because that could give me a year's worth of additional material to continue researching a certain subject. Uh, and I think that's a very different way of understanding as a journalist, the relationship you have to the community you serve.
1: Okay. Last question. Aside from hoping that the book is a commercial success and you sell millions of copies and make lots of money and, right off into the sunset happily. What, you, what is your hope for the message and the content and the, and the ideas in this book? What, what are you hoping that people who read this come away with and, and then move forward with?
0: Our hope, one thing, our hope is certainly not to see uh, viral Web 2.0 influencers uh, and so many of the other uh, terms we, we focus on in the book just get replaced by a different set of terms. Uh, for us, it's very much more the the thought process the book looks to encourage, than it is some end goal. Uh, you know, a part a good portion of our book is really focused on thinking through the sorts of metaphors and buzzwords we so often use. Uh, and I would say, both in both in academia and in the industry, we can be quite guilty of it: is uh, picking concepts and then starting to use them far beyond their original uh, helpful context. And and that's been certainly the goal that we focused on. One of the things we say is we didn't intend to write uh, the book on a lot of these processes, but a book on this process that would generate a longstanding conversation. So our hope would be, especially uh, as this book uh, gets spread among media professionals, hopefully to introduce them to a set of questions to ask that sparks a much longer ongoing conversation. Uh, You know, and, and, That's certainly part of the impetus behind having so many different voices involved in the overall book project, because these are people quite invested in these sets of questions uh, and we will probably, as a community, be working on uh, further and deeper understanding a lot of these issues for many, many years to come. So uh, hopefully getting more and more people engaged in thinking about these issues critically uh, leads to... uh, uh, leads to a more equitable media environment. That would be my hope and goal.
2: You know, one of the terms we use in the book is the term moral economy. And it's from the historian E.P. Thompson, who was writing about the sort of peasant uprisings that took place during the transition from feudalism to capitalism. And he sort of, his argue, underlying argument is that underlying an economic system, there's a moral system, a sense of shared understandings of how the people relate to each other. What is ethical, principled, con- exchange between people. Before, Before we can exchange anything with each other, we have to have some basis of trust. And it may not be an equal basis. It wasn't certainly in feudalism, but it has to be stable and predictable. And we've just gone through this period of profound disruption where the terms of our relationships to media producers and media consumers have broken down. And what we have to now do is negotiate a new moral economy what I in convergence culture with suggesting that we all know the culture will become more participatory, more people will be creating and circulating media, but the terms of our participation are still up for grabs. And what I hope our work does is makes those, those debates over the terms of participation, that much more vivid, concrete gives us a shared vocabulary to have those conversations with. And then inspires people to talk to each other about what a better media ecology would look like. How do we protect the rights of, the, of people who create content, and how do we produce protect the rights of the public to meaningfully engage with that content and their conversation? How do we ensure a responsibility of content producers to the communities they're serving, and how do we increase the, individ- the, con- the responsibilities we face as individuals or communities to be over the materials we choose to circulate. Is it accurate? Is it fair? And so forth. And these are core questions of the moral economy that are going to be played out over the next few decades. And I'd love for our book to play a role of giving people some language to talk about those issues with.
1: The book is Spreadable Media, Creating Value and Meaning in a Network Culture. And Henry Jenkins, Sam Ford, and Joshua Green are the authors. Henry and Sam, thank you for taking some time to talk about it. Good luck with the book and with the ideas. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find spreadable media written by Henry Jenkins, Sam Ford, and Joshua Green at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks
2: for listening.